0: Another episode of Unravel Joy here with Dr. Jonathan Michael Square, lecturer at Harvard, scholar, publisher, editor, and writer. Welcome again!
1: Oh my gosh, that's quite an introduction, right? <laughs> Thank you,
0: it's well deserved. You worked really hard. Um, and full disclosure, we were entirely friends, which I feel very privileged to be one of your friends and to also dig into some topics that i couldn't get into with other guests because we were friends (laughs) (laughs) one of those topics being black in the archive we have questions to be referenced from they are questions that were taken from a conversation some of these questions were taken from a conversation that happened at my gallery waller gallery here in baltimore and it was also in conjunction with an exhibition called dispersive archives one of the other panelists who isn't with us here today is jessica douglas who is an archivist based out of maryland right amazing 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 woman Mm -hmm. um she knows this to be true um but i also you know we always want to give props so here we dive in into this weird new format and uh yeah feel free to ask me any questions as we move forward but first, uh, what inspired you to get into your field of study?
1: You know, actually, I don't think it's that weird of a format.
0: Oh, okay. R-
1: we're friends. We're having a conversation. We're it's just rec- true. We're just recording it.
0: But we usually, <laughs> even with our friends that we've had on the show, it's very much like the questions, and maybe they'll oh. like have a back and forth. But we don't. We don't have our guests ask us questions. Oh. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I'm excited to try this new format, get even weird though with it, it. it feels natural to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: to me, it also feels natural. But for us, I understand that it's new and weird. So, mm. I'm excited about okay. it. That's what, what a, I'm saying.
1: What a had a format. Let me answer your first. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what inspired you to get into your field of study? Oh, also just, just also an aside, because we've been drinking. No. It makes it makes a big difference. Not a lot. We have not been drinking a lot. Just you know enough to. Relax
1: from the day to lubricate the conversation.
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> um. So, how did I get into my field to study? It happened organically. I've always been a humanities person. I like reading. I like research. I like literature. I like studying history. So, in college, I majored in history and comparative literature. And while I was in college, I got really interested in the history of slavery and just general Afro-diasporic history. And I was fascinated by histories of black people outside of the U.S. Mm because I feel like I grew up steeped in the history of slavery, being from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, I just sort of grew up around plantations and people talking about that history. So I wanted to study that history outside of the U.S. context. So I started studying like slavery in the Caribbean and in Latin America and after I graduated, I did a master's at the University of Texas in Latin American Studies, and I focused on slavery in Brazil. And I actually, when I started my PhD, that was my focus. Mm-hmm. Now, now I'm a fashion scholar, which is why we're Yay. friends. <laughs> but when I st- first started my PhD, I was interested in the history of slavery in Brazil, and I was writing my dissertation on a prison that was built in Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. But Long story short, (laughs) I've always had an interest in my own history Mm -hmm. as a person of African descent who's not from Africa, who's a descendant of slaves, and sort Mm -hmm. of uncovering that history. But I've also had an interest interest in that history writ large, just the diaspora in general.
0: Right. I guess I could answer the question quickly because people on the show, especially our seasoned fashion nerds, know about how I didn't know this was... um, a field of study and when i found out i immediately that was like the epiphany moment for me to figure out ways i could talk about things i wanted to talk about ways to talk about things um that i hadn't i didn't know i wanted to talk about yet and to explore so many new avenues so i took that and then pursued a degree in it and uh, to do the podcast we get this question a lot like what convinced us to do a podcast well honestly it was jasmine and dana because it was something that was in the back of my mind, like, how do we democratize our information to a wider audience, um, you know, from grad school, just from academia? Because I realized, like, I could write as many articles as possible, but it really wouldn't be reaching as many people as I would want to. And not just for the sake of popularity, but, like, people that really want to know the information don't actually have access in the same way in some ways it's just a straight up paywall right Mm. so (laughs) thinking about it in that way and that has just driven me all of that actually has driven me to um continue to do the work
1: i often get this question from undergrads or people who instead of going to grad school just went into a professional career Mm. what advice would you give someone who's interested in doing either a master's degree or a phd
0: I think it depends on what your goals are, Mm. and I think it depends on where you are currently situated in your career. If you are making a leap into a new career, I suggest getting a degree because it helps position you better. It gives Mm. you a a lot more of an apparatus. Uh, If you, uh, for instance, and this happens a lot with conservators, oftentimes they have to go back to school to get their certificate, but they actually started an apprenticeship program and they might be, have been um, conservators for quite some time. Mm. But to move up, they need a degree. And so there's that. There's, like, just the functionality, the practicality of the degree. And um, getting a PhD, that's, like, a little foreign to me. I don't have a PhD yet. It's something I'm interested in doing in the future. But I also don't know – I mean there's a lot of barriers in getting a PhD just like with getting a master's and to truly understand that and really build out a pros and cons list because a lot of people ask me specifically about FIT where I went and other schools and we talk a lot about how we loved our we actually really loved I have a lot of critiques but we really loved our education because it was a lot of practical and technical training that we received but some people don't Forever foresee that being necessary to their practice. And while I would disagree with that, that's not for me to decide Mm. for someone. So if they want something more theory-based, FIT might not be the best place. If they want something more technical um, and more technically focused, like for conservation, I wouldn't suggest FIT. I would actually suggest um, there's a great program in Scotland, but also Winterthur, because Mm. they have a huge, robust um, conservation program there. So it really does depend on what what you want, what your career is right now, Mm. what you want your goals to be. Excuse me. And if you don't have answers to those questions, you have to answer those questions first. Mm. Because it is a big time commitment in a lot of cases. It is a huge money commitment. Even Mm. if you're getting a free ride to a PhD, you might have to move far Mm -hmm. away from family. So that might be a labor or an emotional labor commitment. So thinking about all that. And so that's my advice.
1: I would actually give the exact same advice. Oh. Yeah. Cool. I think you have to look at the life that you want and ask yourself, do I need a graduate degree to mm-hmm. achieve this? Mm-hmm. Um you know, I don't suggest everyone go to grad school, get a master's or a PhD. I don't even suggest everyone go to college. Mm. I don't think mm-hmm. it's necessary for everyone and for what 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 you want to do. So, I looked at I really enjoyed graduate school. Mhm. I enjoyed the process and I knew I wanted to publish a lot in my life. Mm -hmm. And having a PhD facilitates that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Even having a master's to a certain degree facilitates that in many ways. So it's also, you know, to think about like, do you need to get a PhD? Maybe not necessarily if you want to publish. There are so many options. mm -hmm. But a PhD makes it a lot easier. Even just pursuing your PhD, that process makes it a lot easier Mm. (laughs) to um, get published.
1: And there's so many people that I admire whose work that I'm, like, modeling who didn't go to grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can do, you can change the world. You can write interesting articles, interesting books, curate good exhibitions, do amazing work, and not have a graduate degree. Right.
0: Exactly. What what are you seeing that is missing? And Mm. looking to you programs that are doing things that you feel um are gonna fill a gap for you either in your knowledge or in something new that you want to do mm. if that that's like extra credit though i think having that foundation of what your goals are and what you want is very is like that's gonna that's gonna force your decision mm. whether you believe it to or not um and whether you know it once you've already you're already in the program or not um those kind of guide your decisions but um extra credit would be to look at, look at programs that are doing new stuff or look at programs that are doing the thing you want to do
1: so if you decide that you want you want to get a graduate degree that you or you need a graduate degree to mm. pursue the career that you want, I would tell you if you're interested in a Ph.D., this is what I always tell people. It's not about the program. It's about your advisor. Mm, you that's appla- great. You that's apply great. to work with an advisor. You don't apply to the program. And that's different from undergrad. That's even different from a master's mm-hmm. program because you apply to the program or the school in those cases. But when you're p- applying to a, a Ph.D., you're essentially applying to be the apprentice to a seasoned scholar, so you need to develop a relationship with them before you even apply to the program. You need to have a phone conversation with them, exchange emails with them, even meet them in person if possible.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I think a lot of that, um, along with what we were saying a little bit earlier, but or f- like our first statement, um, b- building a rapport with people in the department um even if you don't like clue in on an advisor right away is just to help you narrow it down but that goes to your goals and like what you want and what you see in the future for yourself right mm. um, but it's, that's an important point of process mm. for the process of getting a phd because mm. it isn't it definitely is not the same and i'm learning that through the process of just looking mm. because the reason i'm just sitting and looking and looking at it as a possibility is for that exact reason like who uh, my alma mater has a really cool phd i'll tell you um off air about it that I'm thinking about applying to and I know the people in the program and I'm also an alumnus of that space which might seem lazy to some of you out there but they do really cool stuff and they have really great connections to um, talking more holistically about a lot of what we do I do on the podcast and I also would be able to roll in a lot of what I already do Mm. And, um, again, I'm thinking about my goals, what I see to do in the future, what I see that's missing from what I want to do, Mm. and also what I see is missing in a lot of other programs that I think it has value there. And there's pros and cons of that program, I think. I haven't talked to a lot of students. That helped me make a really solid decision about grad school was talking to other people in programs, too. Mm. So I think that... um, while advisors change and, you know, they leave or they um, take on different students or they're at capacity, you still should probably look also just at the program and talking to other students mm-hmm. um, that have, might have experience. But that's extra credit. You have to figure out your goals first. <laughs> um, what are the differences you experienced as an African-American in undergrad and graduate school?
1: Ooh, I could, you know, talk – answer this question for over an hour same (laughs) but i'm gonna keep it cute keep it pithy um i mean honestly the experience is completely different in a lot of ways it's in it's different and it's similar Mm -hmm. actually it's similar in that in both cases whether i was an undergrad or i was in a graduate program i was navigating elite spaces Mm -hmm. as a minority so I had a lot of similar experiences as an undergrad and as a um, graduate student. But undergrad, honestly, there were just more POCs. There were more students of color pursuing bachelor's degrees. But once you make it to the graduate degree, um, I mean, in the case of my master's, my PhD was actually not that diverse, but more diverse than my master's program. Mm -hmm. In my Mm -hmm. master's program, I was the only black student. Mm. There were other students of color, but I was the only black student. Um, and, of course, there's issues and, you know, problems that I encounter being the only black student. And I really didn't have anyone to go to right. in that particular case. Um, my PhD experience was a little different because one of the best places to study Afro-Diasporic history is NYU. Mm-hmm. And it tends to attract a more diverse student body. Um, so I had a number of first people of color in my program, but mm-hmm. also black students who I could sort of reach out to for guidance and advice Got uh, you. who were studying. Some things are very similar to me. Mm-hmm.
0: So you had to kind of like, um, you were mission building and like coalition building, mm-hmm. and, which is really cool. Actually. I didn't know that about your program. Mm-hmm. This is a great ad for the program.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in my U history, history department. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very happy with my choice. I I considered a number of schools, applied to a number of schools, um, but I chose NYU because I heard only good things.
0: About that program? Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, And there's a lot of really cool people at NYU right now, like Deb Willis, who's like a new appointee, which is really rad. I don't know if you've seen that fashion exhibition yet.
1: I haven't. It's it's on my list. I'm
0: I'm gonna be there soon and I'm gonna go. Oh. Um, because it's closing soonish. I think it closed early. Sorry for that tangent, y'all, but <laughs> it, when we think about black bodies in academic spaces, which is what this episode is about, but also people specifically that work in fashion, which is even more of a niche kind of lens and why we might feel some kind of way and um our work is motivated by kind of some of these experiences, I think. Whether we really truly Think about it consciously is why I want to talk about it. So I wanted to bring up Deb Willis um, and at also, NYU,
1: and also Deb Willis is just, is just really generous. Mm-hmm. Like she, she mm-hmm. part of her work is to be an amazing scholar, curator, and photographer, but also she's mentored several generations absolutely. of Black creatives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like including her son, which is really interesting, mm. um, and, and how he proceeds to work in social practice
1: what's your experience being an african-american at fit right or just navigating the sort of podcast realm
0: realm so we're lucky for the podcast specifically i'll speak to that easily so we've been very supported by especially a lot of latinx not so much um african-american podcasters which i don't know why that is um yeah i mean and i um i mean it's really not it's really no shade Honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also it's because we have deeper connections to the Latinx community. Um, Locator Radio, uh Latinos who lunch, uh Grizzly Kiki. Like these are people these are um podcasts that are are Latinx or at least partially Latinx. So I think that's one of the reasons. Um but we also don't go to festivals. Like we don't really we're not like I don't know, I don't we're not like professional podcasters in the same way a lot of other people do, which is they go to festivals they go to the fairs, and they interact with one another pretty intensely. So we haven't actually had to deal with it in the same way. Uh, and that's probably a good thing. That's probably a great thing because mm. we have really loud mouths. and, um, <laughs> and You us.
1: also have full-time jobs.
0: We also have full-time jobs. We also do other projects. Mm. And so, um, so thinking about participating in the way that – You know, prior to, honestly, prior to us even starting the podcast uh, and me joining the podcast, it was done very differently. Hmm. Like there were fairs, there were cons, conferences, all that stuff around. And it was it's it was it's very white. It just is. Those those spaces are mostly dominated by white people. That is definitely changing. But I think that's also why the Latinx community while some of them are white but don't necessarily identify as white and so they were trying to figure out a way to navigate all of that Mm. and i think that's why we um also were um really embraced um, by a a lot of them so we really appreciate that uh and from that community and them not being judgy or being like overly critical of like our format or what Mm. we're doing and a lot of the people like radio mina also um very different subject matters like not even close Mm. like (laughs) Like, not even close to, like, history-based in any way. Hmm. Uh, but very supportive of what we do and our, our subjects. And also, like, you know, um, not so much anymore, but, like, push our, our content and, like, would make suggestions, um, which, which was great. And, and we had the exchanges and we would do meetups. Going back to school, however, oh. I I wanted to shout out UMBC. I really love their campus. I know that there is some, there have been and are some problems on campus around um, sexual harassment and rape. So I just want to like call that out. But my experience there was really good. I don't want to say that like to be dismissive, but to also highlight that I really enjoyed being at school there. It is by far one of the nerdiest campuses, <laughs> I think in in the states. Um, MIT is really nerdy, but they have like a cool factor. That does not exist on the UMBC campus, hmm. and I can say this openly um, and be really shady because everybody feels this way. It's like a bunch of nerds on campus. A lot of ex- um, a lot of um, international students. Um, the our crowning achievements are our chess team, hmm. world renowned chess team. That is our biggest and major sport. Oh
1: my gosh! So <laughs> just to give you an <laughs> understanding,
0: yes, we we have beat MIT on multiple occasions. (laughs) So just, and I don't know if that's still the case, but um, go over two years. And now we have a basketball team that does pretty well. And um, some other sports that do really well. And uh, we house the the Olympic size pool that uh, Michael Phelps used and a lot of the Olympic team. So I'm explaining sports because that's kind of like a barometer for how your college is. Right. Because they, usually the sports are the ones that bring in money. Hmm. So that wasn't the case. Um, Engineering was also a big department um it basically is sponsored by microsoft and northrop grumman and it really is like a farm for microsoft and northrop grumman northrop grumman is i don't believe they're solely maryland based but they i mean they have a lot of offices and buildings here and a lot of contracts obviously with the government which is close so just to give you a background. <laughs> so it was very culturally diverse. I also came from a relatively culturally di- diverse suburb. So it was it was a really great transition. And in between there, I was in community college, which um, was also diverse. Now getting to grad school, I was the only black person in that program. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple of people of color be- above and below me, but it was by far radically not diverse. And also I didn't feel culturally that my needs were met but i also understood that that wasn't going to be the case mm. because i knew other people that went to grad school so i was just prepared for a certain level of just like keeping my head down. i did a lot of keeping my head down while i was in grad school because and i also realized like after the like during the process that i need to advocate for stories i want to talk about mm. and um that continued, and I really fought to tell the stories I wanted to tell throughout grad school. And I didn't really think about that until I got time to do my qualifying paper, mm. and it was like really like I wouldn't even say cutthroat, but it was a really like heavy process, mm. and a lot of back and forth, and a lot of me being right, and a lot of like the advisor. And um i as I say, sort of off mic um so yeah, I mean it was it was actually quite hard for me my my undergrad experience, my high school experience, my community college experience all great mm. um acknowledging you know some of the issues around institutions but in in um in graduate school i like I struggled a little bit um I wanted to go into conservation, there was a huge drama around that, not just me specifically, but just um I, being a black conservator. <laughs> Mm. is extraordinarily rare. And for those that are listening now, and I don't actually talk about this a whole lot, my mm. experience at FIT, um, I talk about how great the education was, and I still believe that, but um, I really don't talk about it, which mm. is why I have so much to say. Um, but being a black conservator is, uh, you will be among very, very few. Mm. And I mean, like, you might be able to count it on hands and does. Mm. It is, especially when it comes to textiles or fashion or um, any sort of fabric material culture it is it is like for real like and i mean globally mm-hmm. um um to be a, especially a black woman but just a black person in a um, conservation space and that was one of the con- the research points that i wanted to do was like think about black conservators and maybe they were called something else right mm. because you know vacuuming is a point of conservation mm. depending on you know the process and how you do that so, yeah, it, there was a lot of contentious moments in, in grad school, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard. But I got through it by just, like, keeping my head down and also, like, forging paths for my narratives, hmm. and I think a lot of the reason I didn't speak up is because I knew that I wanted to do other projects to do that, hmm. and I just needed to make it through grad school to do that, and to learn as much as I could, and gather as much information, like you were talking about earlier, about get, getting the most out of it for you mm-hmm. and what you want to do. And so I think it's it's great advice, but that's my long, <laughs> long new – this might be a little scary because I don't know if the institution um, listens. Like, I don't know who from the institution listens, so it'll be very interesting.
1: Well, they need to hear it.
0: Yeah, I do. And I, I've thought about writing a letter, but I'm still – in a point of process with them mm. about some things mm. with my degree. So, um, which is a whole other conversation <laughs> um, that is also annoying. And a part of the same thing about not being supported culturally mm. um, in this in the space. Um, and also, you know, maybe I could have advocated for myself more. I don't want to do victim speak, but <laughs> because it was a slightly traumatic experience um, in comparison to my other educational experiences. Mm. And I grew up in the suburbs as a black woman, a black girl, and it was not easy. Mm. And there were definitely microaggressions and traumatic experiences. But by far, grad school was pretty tough, mm. um, even though I had that kind of tough skin from those experiences. But yeah, thanks for asking. Oh, no problem. From This is pulled directly from the talk we had during Dispersive Archives. But I think it's important to think about not just us studying. We, we uh, deal with trauma and microaggressions in uh and it's i think it becomes trauma because of how continuous and redundant it becomes like just like how continuous it is but we also deal with it in our places of research Hmm. so that includes libraries museums and so my question is what are the differences you've experienced as an african-american in the archive or on research appointments and then i have a follow-up question
1: also, I just want to shout out the Dispersive Archives um, show that you had oh. here. It was amazing. Enjoy. You actually had a piece in the show, which I did. Yeah, I,
0: d- I did. I had my first social practice piece, and it <laughs> included fashion, of course, and um, that is new for me, for to because I used to do performance pe- art and I used to do photography, and my photography was also featured in that piece. But uh, social practice to me, I've been um, a little reserved to do. Mm-hmm because there's a lot of political baggage but thank you for bringing that up and maybe we I need to talk about it more in the show about like if I move forward with social practice which I do believe I will I need to include fashion it has Mm. to like I think I just I need to keep using fashion we were talking Mm. about in another episode about needing to continuously do the work or you feel like there's a piece missing and Mm. I feel like that's missing from my curatorial practice and my um, art like my art world Mm. experience
1: cool but also just to be kind to ourselves. I mean, grad school is really hard. And it's supposed to be hard. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the reason why everyone doesn't go to grad school. It's meant to be a challenge. So it's okay for it to be challenging. Um, and you have to be kind to yourself. And also to learn from your mistakes. Um, because it's part of the learning process. You make a mistake and then you know, okay, I'm not going to do that again. So... Absolutely.
0: I think that we often try to compartmentalize things into the way that we speak academically, and I often think as we don't. I think we don't take time to think about how we're being impacted emotionally and physically, and in our relationships, and just in um, outside of just our career when we're inside of our career, but like outside and what that means for maybe communities we want to impact. And that became very real for me when I went to. When I went to uh, when I went to Salzburg mm. for YCI because it really helped me to understand that it's all very much connected and that might seem very obvious for a few people mm. um, out there in the world but uh, for me it was it wasn't obvious at all
1: I mean for me, the work that I'm doing is very personal and it's hard not to take critiques personally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I have this project called Fashioning Self in Slavery and Freedom. But it and it's about how enslaved peoples far for more freedom and express their identity through dress and adornment. But it's also about me as a scholar and how I'm fashioning myself into a scholar. So my work is very personal. it's it's, it's connected to my identity mm-hmm. and it's connected to my history. So when someone has something to say about it, I mean I take it personally. <laughs> mm-hmm. so,
0: but I also mean, like, when we were talking about, like, um, some of the traumas that you can receive in academia and the microaggressions, like, we also don't really tap into, like, I didn't really tap into that until I left mm-hmm. my in- the institution I was studying in.
1: I mean, I'm still learning how to get over those microaggressions because it's, it's, it's something that hasn't gone away. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still dealing with them, and I'm still learning how to sort of surpass them. Um, and I don't got to be honest, I don't have like the best. I'm really good at talking about getting into grad school mm-hmm. because I did it, graduated, and I moved on, so I, I can like reflect on it and like give all these like great advice, like do this, do that, mm-hmm. talk to this person, do you know? Right, but like. Dealing with, like, the microaggressions of academia is, like, an ongoing mm-hmm. struggle that I'm still in the process of learning how to deal with. So, I mean, honestly, communication is key. Mm-hmm. So, simple
0: but true. Yeah. Very simple but true.
1: But I'm really good at giving advice. <laughs> but I'm really bad at following That's my own advice. advice. <laughs>
0: What an academic that doesn't take their own advice, but has wonderful advice. <laughs> it's like that's like who we are. If we were like a a Barbie or some sort of like chi- children's toy, that would be like our backstory. Is that we like don't <laughs> 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 or like if you look an academic up in like some like Tinder profile, like it's like we don't we give great advice, but we don't follow it. <laughs> it's, it's,
1: it's like the n- human condition. Like, how many mm-hmm. times have you met like a therapist that's out of their mind? Oh, okay. or like yeah. you know. I don't know, like, what's another contradiction? Like, the Marxists who doesn't pay their domestic fairly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, people are, like, walking contradictions. So, like, I'm really good at giving advice of, like, navigating the academic realm. Am I following my own advice? Yes and no. I
0: mean, and I also think it's hard to, we give the, it's easier to give the advice than to live the advice. And sometimes circumstances shift how you would even take your own advice, hmm. right? So, um, again, be kind to yourself. Gentlemen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what was a pivotal moment in your research? You can pick to an item or a conversation, but it's up to you.
1: I think when I started listening to myself, mm. and the only that only happened when I started like because I was really I was I did very well as an undergrad,
2: mm, mm-hmm.
1: um, and. Graduate school, my PhD, my master's program, even though I just mentioned that I was the only black student in the program. It was kind of a breeze for me. Mm-hmm. Like I had good grades. I got into a PhD program. I got into, I applied to 12 programs and I got into seven Whoa. of them.
0: flex. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: like my early to like mid to even late 20s mm-hmm. was kind of a breeze. And it was only sort of midway through the PhD program where I started to have a lot of struggles. Right. Um and it was only in those struggles that I found myself like it, when it wasn't when it wasn't a breeze, I had to like sit back and be like okay, this isn't easy. Why isn't it easy? Like what what's happening here? Like what what do I why do I need to recalibrate? Like where do I need to orient myself towards? And it's honestly until I started injecting the study of fashion into my work, that things started to fall into place. That's
0: really interesting that fashion was, like, the catalyst. was. it it fashion history or just fashion in general?
1: Fashion in general. Wow, okay. Fashion in general. And I have to thank New York City, um, moving to New York City. Oh,
0: okay, that move helped to shift it. Okay.
1: Because if you talk to any of my friends or family members, they would tell you that I've always been interested in fashion, Mm -hmm. but I never thought it was a viable career or focus of academic inquiry. Right. And it wasn't until I moved to New York and I was like, I can make a career out of this. You can? <laughs> I would tell people, like, oh, I, like, you know, I'm interested in fashion, but I just like wearing cute outfits.
0: Right. And that, um, I mean, but you have to unpack a lot of that stuff. Mm. I think that's the same thing about learning about yourself. And I think that's such a great answer. I was thinking of, like, oh, a conversation you had. Or, oh, like, an item that you found. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, But, yeah, to think, of, to realize about yourself as we continue to have a kind of this conversation about the self. Um, is really that's a really good answer because <laughs> mm. I, I, mine is Monica Miller, Miller's book mm. was a huge pivotal in my research, and that was at the uh, foundation. I guess I, yeah, I say she's like the foundation of who I am as a scholar. And you, you reflected a little bit that she is an example frequently used um, by folks that study fashion history, especially folks of color, um, especially Black folks, but also other creatives mm. use her work as a catalyst for their work, including designers, fashion designers. And so, yeah, I hate to be boring, and it's kind of like, but she really is, and it it proves to be that she is pivotal in changing the minds of of generation, as we go back to talking about like Debbie Willis Mm. or Deb Willis and her work. So she was really the catalyst. She really was Mm. um, because I didn't know that you could research it, and Mm -hmm. then she wrote this whole ass book about it. And she wasn't even a fashion historian. And then to find out through a lot of her, well, she wasn't traditionally trained as a fashion historian, right? But she obviously has, is it, but then looking at her secondary and primary sources and seeing where those folks went to school mm. immediately, like there, I didn't even know there was more than one, let alone one that um, was affordable and in a really amazing place like New York <clears throat> and would, and had like a legacy, Of uh, fashion history in a way with their own collection, right? Mm. In a way that a lot of other programs just don't have the opportunity. Mm. You know, a lot of a lot of academic programs don't get to have their own collection of items. Mm. That's just regardless of whether it is fashion or any any other material culture. Mm. So that that was cool, but it really took her and then me researching into that book and the the sources to see it. But that I mean, that really like. That really, like, um, inspired me. That was, it really did. I don't know. It uplifted me. It, like, it was, like, this really, like, big aha moment. And, mm. like, I, like, ascended and just, like, did this, like, angelic. Like, it really, it really was, like, an experience. Like, a religious experience, like, realizing that that moment.
1: I mean, to a certain extent, the same for me. Like, Slays, Slays the Fashion came out in 2009, which was my first year in the PhD program. Okay, <laughs> I
0: feel like where were you enslaved? To now? It really, it's like that big. I think it's that big of a deal. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I didn't immediately pivot. I didn't Im- immediately change my um, dissertation topic, but it showed the the possibility of it being an academic topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until like maybe five years later that I started studying it. Um, but, yeah, it was, a, it was a pivotal moment. How has your archi- arch- archival practice evolved from your time at FIT mm. to opening this gallery to doing the work for Unravel? Like, how have you sort of evolved as a researcher over the years?
0: I've had to get a lot more crafty because I'm not attached to an institution. Mm. So I've, I really have had to be a lot more specific in who I'm reaching out to. I've had to do a lot more cold calling um of institutions like doing the ruby bailey i had some connections to um doing that ruby bailey research because of work you've done around it but also i taught a class at mcmy at the museum of the city of new york so that was very helpful and that was one of the reasons i wanted to dig deepest because i had connections there Hmm. again thinking about your goals and how you can achieve those um it really can be that simple right like you knowing you have um history at a certain place and they have certain collections and maybe you should tap into those mm. maybe it might seem like a lazy option but honestly that could get you very far especially as an independent scholar and so yeah that's. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely yeah. no
1: I think we should have a conversation about research process because we often present the final product mm-hmm. and we don't tell people the backstory of like you know digging through archives or sending emails that are never answered or like You know,
0: yeah. Yeah. Never
1: being answered, (laughs) painful, (laughs) very painful. (laughs) Finding finding things through random Google searches, Mm -hmm. um, having conversations with people and be like, "Have you read X, Y, or Z?" It's like, "No, I haven't read that." And you read it, and it changes the way you think about your research topic.
0: Yeah, and I also found that presenting on work that I didn't, I wasn't sure about, but that I I had a presentation, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have the chapter or I didn't have the article really gleaned a lot for me, mm. even just in the process of presenting the work and understanding where I was because oftentimes we do not read our articles aloud. We do not read our grad papers or PhD papers or dissertations or qualifying papers aloud. Mm-hmm. That is not really a practice. And there's a multitude of reasons, some of which being it's kind of impractical, but when you do it as a presentation, it opens up this other Avenue of you. How are you actually put it, forming your opinions? Mm. Um, and it it kind of it visualizes it in a way, even though it's audible. Mm. So, yeah, I think that has been a huge um, insp- help for me as well in that's, doing the research.
1: That's really important because I think you're absolutely right. There's something about talking about your research in a public forum mm-hmm. that completely changes the 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 nature of it or the feel of it. Like mm-hmm. I've been, and it's not even like. Of course, the way people interact with it is really important. People offer suggestions and advice and references that you should follow up with. But also just the very practice of speaking it in public is really important. Because sometimes you're saying is like, actually, as I'm saying this, this isn't making sense. Right. Or maybe I need to reframe this argument because people are looking at me sideways.
0: (laughs) It's true. Or if people have specific questions about something maybe it's not really the questions that get you there, but the fact that they're asking that specific question mm-hmm. over and over again really makes you think like, oh, this is actually an important route. Even if your advisor or um, your, or your uh, publisher, or your editor is saying it doesn't necessarily give you that note, the mm-hmm. public can also help you glean kind of a direction you need to go, especially if you're looking to fill a page count, but mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. obviously want to fluff it out. You want to figure out something meaningful to, um, Encourage, like you know encourage the page count I guess Ooh, I like that <laughs> You're encouraging the page count think, <laughs> instead of like filling it out. because you want you want substance I mean at least if you are a good scholar you want you want some substance in your work and I think um, crowdsourcing it I guess that's a form of crowdsourcing absolutely even it's not deliberate is is a really cool way to do it and um, in the meantime you are also presenting your work
1: exactly so, I think, I think <laughs> that's a really a double bonus I think that's a good scholarly hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's something that I um, heard Jeremy O'Harris say, the playwright. Oh,
0: okay. And he said
1: that sometimes he builds the skeleton of a play, and then he tells it to someone in the early stage. And if they mm. if they like screw up their face or if they like question it, it's like okay, I need to go back to the lab, work on this a little bit more until people like are on board with what I'm saying.
0: And I think in creative fields, it's a much more it's a much more seasoned practice. Like, it's, a, it's expected hmm. that you were consistently, like, kind of reworking it and retooling it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one documentary I wanted to watch, but I wanted to give some more time. So, the next time you come, we'll watch the um, Ruthie Carter abstract documentary.
1: Ooh. What did we watch that? Watch okay. Okay. You can do it. You okay. can do it then. And <laughs> she
0: talks about, like, she's on the set. So, she's, like, tooling it after because hmm. seeing it in motion. Changes entirely the same with presenting your work that's usually only written. Mm. It's like you want to change it right away, like you're like, mm, No, 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 or like even when you're just practicing, you're like, mm-hmm. This whole paragraph doesn't make sense. It makes sense on paper, but if you were presenting it to an audience, it's like, This is whack, right? Or not even whack, I don't want, but like sometimes it can be whack. It's okay to be whack sometimes. Mm-hmm. You, like you said, the, sh- the part of the struggle is actually what helped you mm-hmm. get there where exactly. you wanted to be cool
1: sometimes i use my students honestly oh, that's a
0: great that's also great especially it's, for a lot of our professors and teachers out there listening
1: because i, w- I want to write something that an 18 or 19 year old mm-hmm. will read and enjoy and get something out of so if i if i it to one of my students and they're like i don't understand what you're talking about it's like okay i need to go back get it down to its most essential like kernel and rethink how I'm communicating this idea.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And thinking, yeah, thinking about younger audiences. Even though I know that's not applicable to everyone in all all writing fields, but I we think about that a lot. That's partially why the podcast exists. But that's I think also why we land on. Um, on syllabi like our podcast Hmm. episodes land on syllabi because of that reason and i'm just so grateful for that even though a lot of people they don't reach out to us and tell us Hmm. we just like find it by having it but um i'm plugging that and giving myself a little flex because it's important it's important to me particularly individually but i know it's important to our goals as a podcast to do that to deliver information to people where not just where they are but not to talk down to them but deliver it in a way that is not only four or five academics to mm-hmm. read your paper exactly. and again it's not based on popularity it's based on the fact that like we have a lot of information to share we always want to share information to scholars but we have limited audiences and being a pro- being a professor being an educator helps to expand your audience and maybe it is a little bit of narcissism and then maybe we should um pay lip service to that that we have a little bit of narcissism in that way but mm. it's because we do a lot of research why would we it's a little bit of hoarding that i think can happen mm-hmm. in academic spaces not just in fashion history but definitely also in fashion history because everybody wants to protect their primary sources which i have a whole other feeling about that because like if you if you hoard all the information that's how all of the history gets lost mm-hmm. especially if you yourself are the only ones and isn't, maybe not even in an institution where it can be Taken care of, then we're hoarding resources. That's crazy. I understand hoarding water is more important than hoarding history, but it can be very damaging. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say the same, it wouldn't be the same sort of damage, but it can be damaging.
1: I mean, I try to be very generous about my research. I share everything on Facebook and Instagram, you do? and I get a lot out of it. I know a lot of academics would sort of hide that research in the effort to protect their intellectual property until mm-hmm. it's published. And I under, I completely understand. Um, and I've been plagiarized. People have stolen my ideas in the past. But despite that, I think I get so much more out of sharing my information. And you know what? People give me references, give me suggestions, give me sources, and it's sort of enriched my research. Mm-hmm. So my philosophy is just to share it. And even though there's a risk of someone sort of taking it and doing something nefarious with it, I get like 10 times more out of it mm-hmm. than that damage. So
0: I think that I think that's really good, especially for people that are scared about that. Mm.
1: So one thing I'm really curious about is, and I'm thinking about my own work, mm-hmm. but I'm also thinking about Unravel. I mean, you guys are really prolific. Like you put out an episode Aww. every single week. Um, you're you're so content driven, and I'm wondering what's the next step for, for Unravel.
0: The next next step step for us and like like when i I think think about about our goals it's a lot lot of dreaming dreaming about about what could be possible possible. so So we talked talked a a lot about maybe being in miami Miami, basel and one one of um like on the panel panel and like like doing hmm. something something that's related to our work and along that vein i really want us to do like college tours. like i love what the fashion and justice workshop has done by going to people and, and I would, I would love Kristen for us to do that, that but that requires funding. And, um, and uh, maybe, maybe now, now as, as we, like I said, have, have been prolific, prolific which is just, I, I just, just uh, I can't, can't stop, stop grinning at, at that. Time. At that time. Time. <laughs> uh, but, but as, as we, we become, become that, that way. way to more people, people. I'm I'm hoping hoping that that more people people will reach reach out for funding. So So if you didn't know, you can, can, we have have a Patreon, of course, we have have a PayPal, but but we also also would love to travel to where you all are, and and interact with you all, and create programming around it. And so that is a big thing for me. I do it for the podcast. I'm sorry, not for the podcast, I do it for the gallery pretty extensively. But I think we are in a niche position, and also for us to kind of strengthen what we currently have. And I know that seems like a weird thing thing, but but like like consistently consistently staying um what do i say consistently staying sustainable is actually quite quite difficult difficult. Mm. we've managed managed to do do it it and um um, we've we've had some some challenges here and and there doing that that, but staying staying sustainable sustainable is actually quite difficult um Um, especially especially the the longer you go right because you're not a new story story, you're not mm. like a new Commodity or, or um, um, interest story. Mm-hmm. So, like, <laughs> not, not just relevant, but saying I'm sustainable is important. I'm so, as we as continue to do, do that, that, I'm excited for that. Um, and to also, also just continuing our, our our user base. So, so like, getting, getting to more colleges, colleges, not just in physically, but, but in the syllabi, too. too. Mm. And, Sorry, oh, and publications. So, one of the things I do when i do next year is start, start doing, doing fashion-focused and fashion and and scenes. Zines. Mm. Because, because I think that's the, the best, best format. format. I, a lot a of, lot of our, our episodes could also could be made into zines, but, but I, I think that, that would require, require a, lot a lot more time. i to do some, some quick, quick and dirty, dirty and, and so, so <laughs> fashion-and-focus and and focus is taking in an eight-minute long, 15-minute long episode, and turning it into a zine I think is very doable. So I'm looking for illustrators out there, especially illustrators of color, but white girls get at me. And then we <laughs> want to work on fashion, fashion and no-cozines. So it's something, something I'm really passionate, passionate about. And so, so thinking about like what you've done, you've the, done the fashion, fashion itself, and self the publications, but, but thinking about how are we going to use that for our mission. mission. Hmm. So, so not, not doing all, all the episodes, episodes because there's there's, there, there is there is a reason that um, Women in Pants is successful in a three-part in the three-part three part podcast, podcast episode stuff. series and why it wouldn't necessarily, necessarily work in the zine, zine format, format or maybe, maybe even in a book situation. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. have written books about mm-hmm. women in pants. Women. But what, what they, what they what and and jobs were able to do, do, with do with that um, um, doesn't, doesn't really, really exist anywhere, anywhere else, else, else um, in any other format. So those are the goals. Stay sustainable. Be be more out in the public to do meetups. And to have a publication, like a little series, a little zine situation. What about
2: you?
1: I mean, for me, I want fashioning itself to be more self-sustaining mm-hmm. um, right now. Like my primary hustle is to attach myself to university and teach full time. Yeah. But I, I, I want to sort of be independent
2: mm-hmm. and sort
1: of have fashioning itself be its own institution. I'm really inspired by um, black institutions black-owned institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really inspired by the work of Theaster Gates.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah good, good, uh, good, uh, good
2: example.
1: Um, and, you know, when you attach yourself to university, and we, I mean, we talked about this already in this conversation, you have to sort of bend and mold yourself to stodgy white sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And I just really want a space and resources and a platform to do the innovative creative work that I want to do without sort of conforming to the strictures Mm -hmm. of an institution. And I kind of want fashioning the self to sort of do that work. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I want to put out more publications. Like I said, I mentioned I wanted to um, do a YouTube channel with fashioning the self. So I just kind of wanted to be more of a self-sustaining sort of, um,
2: like entity,
1: entity yeah mm-hmm. exactly perfect word so and i also think one of the keys to greater visibility is transcending yourself if that mm-hmm. makes sense like i want fashion itself to get to the point where it's just not about me hovering mm-hmm. over my laptop but it's about a community of scholars sort of who are interested in this particular topic um so i kind of want it to be a platform for other people not just me
0: And I tried to make that the gallery that way. Mm, mm -hmm. We literally function as media personalities. So that's a little difficult to do, (laughs) but I mean, in a lot of the other work that we do and we can be of service. Mm. So I think that that is a great way to, to lead if you are putting yourself out in front, um, which is what you're talking about is not putting yourself in front to be of service. Um, I think that's an important component. And when we talk about engaging in spaces, I think, um, that's that's something that people should think about mm, mm-hmm. I think we do it and we think it come and I think it does in some ways come very naturally to the both of us but it's not guaranteed a skill or a mode of behavior that is common in academia mm. so I just want to reach out to those that are hearing these words and think that it's a little complicated of a process um, to like engage and do that work because it's important and you'll and you'll get more people interested in what you're doing automatically because you're not just meeting them, people where they are, because I don't necessarily like that term anymore. But you are also, you're not speaking down to them, but you're speaking in a way that isn't just for people, mm. or just for people with PhDs,
1: mm-hmm. or
0: just for people in your department, um, because mm. it can't get that like minute, right?
1: Yeah. Scope. Exactly. It can. It can get very granular, mm-hmm. and I think that's Granular's a problem. A great word. <laughs> <laughs> I said minute, but granular. <laughs> I think about Jane Austen. And how mm-hmm. how much I enjoy Jane Austen novels, and when she was writing those damn books, she had no idea None. that a, a queer black man in 2019 would be getting his life reading these little novels. But I enjoyed them, mm-hmm. and I want to create something that sort of is transcendent in that way.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I think a lot of people when they think about legacy, it comes from a very selfish space. But I also think legacy can be like continuing it,
2: mm-hmm. like
0: people being able to forge through just what you did what you accomplished. There there's more of us now than there were when you started. I mean, it's still small. Mm-hmm. There's still very few of us and I feel like we mostly know everyone in the, in, yeah. in the world that does it. Um at least at least you know in the states. Um not even the states in the Americas. Yeah.
1: I would tell like a potential black fashion scholar who might be listening to this podcast is that there's so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. Don't think because you're listening to, you know, Jonathan Square and Joy Davis that we're like we're the only ones and that, there's no, that there's no more space. Mm-hmm. There's so much work to be done. Like, I think there's so much work to be done on like fashion within the black church. There's so many like important black figures, like from Oprah to RuPaul, mm-hmm. who like, I'm waiting for an ex- exhibition on RuPaul's costume. Meeting. I'm waiting I for mean, an, Yeah. I'm waiting for an Oprah fashion exhibition. Right. I'm waiting for an exhibition on the black church. Like there's just so much work on like black folks in the U.S. and just diasporically across mm-hmm. the world, that's waiting to be done. So, you know, we're talking about being Black fashion scholars, but it's not a period; it's an ellipsis.
0: Exactly. <laughs> uh, and yeah, my dog got the last word on that. <laughs> it's crazy, but no, I like that. What did you say? It's not.
1: It's not a period. It's an ellipsis. Oh, love that. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, Jonathan, again for being here with us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Like I enjoy, always enjoy having our conversation. So
0: yeah, and I really, I'm glad we kind of brought this topic to life more than we did. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find the conversation between me, Jonathan, and Jessica at Waller Galleries Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Waller Gallery, and just to give a kind of a footnote to that conversation <laughs> that we had. And where can we find your work? Jennifer. Oh,
1: you can find my work on Facebook, facebook.com dot com slash fashioning um, You can find it on Instagram, fashioning mm-hmm. um You can find me on Twitter, which is also fashioning self No, no spaces. And also, I want to say, Jasmine, I wish you were here. <laughs> I
0: know, I'm really glad to have you in my home. Oh, and for you to share a space with my dog and my partner and all that stuff
1: well i'm very thankful for this moment and thankful for anyone who listened up to this moment
0: absolutely um you can find us of course at unravelpodcast.com and we're on instagram unravel podcast facebook unravel a fashion podcast and of course you can email us at unravelpodcast at gmail.com we also have a patreon patreon.com slash unravelpodcast and you can hang out with us there and find out more information around uh Unravel Weeklies—you so can get that weekly. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's in the name, and you can also find Unravel After Dark, where we go in depth with the phone, and many other sexy, sexy, sexy topics. In fact.